And this simple assertion of equality has become an offensive claim for some and divisive for others. My dear brothers and sisters, we stand at a point in time when God's kingdom is breaking through. The church has an opportunity to speak prophetically into the lives of its people, to the country, and to the world. We should be the first to lament and grieve for the oppressed. Welcome to The Legacy Project. My name is Jim Koppel, president of the Servant Ford Foundation. We're an organization committed to leadership development with a specific focus on service. This podcast and its related activities are about sharing the legacy we have inherited and discussing the legacy we still want to create. Legacy is more than cars, houses, boats, and material possessions that we want to leave to the next generation. Other legacy is about core values and beliefs that we inherited from a previous generation. They are the values that shaped us and defined us. Legacy is also about the values we develop or create that can be passed on or shared with the next generation. We will interview people from various backgrounds and walks of life. Some are famous, some, well, maybe not so famous, and others are simply our neighbors, our friends, people who live ordinary lives doing extraordinary things. Become part of this project by being intentional about legacy. More than just memories, but principles that have guided our lives and shaped our decisions. What is the legacy you choose to create? That's what we want to discover. This is Jim Koppel, and welcome to the Legacy Project. We're excited today to have Pastor Rashonda Womack from Flint, Michigan, who will be uh, giving us a statement related to the role of the church, especially when it comes to racial reconciliation and racial justice issues in our local communities, as well as our nation. Uh, Rashonda is a critical thinker on these issues, and we really welcome her remarks and her comments in this important topic to the Legacy Project. So Rashonda, feel free to read your statement. We wanna hear it. All right, thank you. Can we lament for Black lives? That is the question at hand. How can evangelical pastors connect with African-American communities? I suggest starting with lamenting over Black lives. Over the past year, I've been a part of several conversations with pastors about whether or not the church should speak on pol police brutality, mass incarceration, or any number of disparities that the African-American community faces. The phrase, Black Lives Matter, unfortunately has been avoided by many evangelical pastors due to fear over its political implications and social ramifications within their own congregations. Many have worried about what repercussions they might face if they were thought to be aligned with the movement known as Black Lives Matter. But for me, my concern is the spiritual implications of not aligning ourselves with the intention behind this phrase. The assertion Black Lives Matter is at base an affirmation 
that seeks to call into being a yet foreseen reality. Further, it is an affirmation that aligns deeply with basic Christian theology. All Christians should agree that black lives do matter. Expressing concern about the mistreatment of African-Americans should not be a controversial statement. Unfortunately, because we live in a society that has been deformed by white supremacy, things like this are complicated. And this simple assertion of equality has become an offensive claim for some and divisive for others. Realizing the struggle that many pastors are having with addressing racial issues, I felt the urgent need to write on this topic as it affects the spiritual formation of every pastor, leader, and congregant. Importantly, I do not want you to miss this opportunity for ministry and teaching in this critical moment. And so I challenge you to create a plan to broach this subject which has been avoided for far too long. Here are a few suggestions that will help you engage your congregation. First, lament for black lives. For centuries, black people have been despised, rejected, terrorized and slaughtered in this country and around the world. Allow yourself to share in their pain. Try to imagine, if you will, the weight, the stress, the anxiety of knowing that your life doesn't matter to the majority of people around you. Allow yourself to sit in this painful reality that is the Black experience. Second, educate yourself. Listen to the stories of Black people. Watch documentaries or movies, read books, about systemic and institutionalized racism in this country. Consider joining or hosting a group or Bible study addressing these topics. I recommend Be the Bridge by Latasha Morrison. Third, share what you are learning with your congregation. Those in majority white congregations need to know that most of us live in segregated neighborhoods and still go to segregated schools and segregated churches. White people do not often have a clear understanding of what life is like for people of color. So help your congregation to hear their stories. For example, consider inviting black pastors to preach in your church or invite a person of color to share their testimony on a Sunday morning about their experiences. This can create common ground and help your majority white congregation to realize the danger of a single story. I cannot stress enough the real harm that is done to people of color when well-meaning white people choose to only embrace their own point of view. Four, reevaluate your Christian education and discipleship curriculum. Look for curriculum and books that use diverse images and speak to issues of concern in the African-American community and beyond. Address issues of racism and white supremacy 
as an intentional part of your Christian education plan. If we spend more time teaching about the social aspect of holiness, our people would better understand how the Bible and our Christian tradition speaks to social justice issues. A huge part of Christ's mission was to uplift those who were being oppressed and marginalized by the empire of his day. We are called to do the same, to be ministers of reconciliation in our world. Scripture teaches us to bear each other's burdens and it equips us to respond to racism and inequality. To stand in solidarity with black people is to stand for the cause of Christ. Lastly, model and preach the love and truth of the gospel. Jesus boils down all the commandments and laws to these two. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Mark chapter 12, verses 30 and 31. Salvation is both personal and social. It benefits you, but it also should benefit your neighbor. But do you know who your neighbor is? <laughs> Everyone is your neighbor. If we follow this commandment, racism would not and could not persist in our churches or in our communities or in our country for that matter. To stand in solidarity with black people is to stand for the cause of Christ. When we follow his example, we can confidently say black lives matter. One pastor put it this way, Black lives matter to God and to me. As Christians, we can counteract the unconscious bias that we have been taught in this country that views black people as less than human. If pastors don't address this miseducation directly, who will? My dear brothers and sisters, we stand at a point in time when God's kingdom is breaking through, the church has an opportunity to speak prophetically into the lives of its people, to the country and to the world. We should be the first to lament and grieve for the oppressed. We should be the first to take action to stop this oppression. Pastors, I pray that the Holy Spirit will give you the courage to say Black Lives Matter and here's why. Your congregation and your community need to hear it from you. We've been listening to Roshanda Womack, Reverend Womack. She's just recently been ordained in the Church of the Nazarene. And uh, this, this statement is important. It speaks to the historical nature of our own denomination, whose roots are born out of the Wesleyan revival, where social justice mattered. It seems in recent years we have forgotten a lot of that truth, and Rashonda is here today to remind us of the significance and importance of what it is to build bridges to all communities, to different communities, but particularly in this day and age when black lives do matter. They, they matter in every way, shape, and form. Rashonda, thank you for the statement. It's an important statement, 
And I hope our denominational leaders, I hope our faith leaders across the country, not just Nazarenes, but throughout the denomination, throughout the evangelical church in general, uh, will heed your call and your summons to do the right thing. And above all, to love God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and your neighbor likewise, to do justice, love humility, and to love God with all your heart, mind, and soul. Thank you. All right, I have a question for you. Sure. This, this might be a random question, but I know this is an area that you, you know, you're an expert in. And, you know, we've been having debates about defund the police or reform, you know, is it training? What is the issue? How do we um, address, you know, all the violence, the, the brutality, things we've been seeing from police? And I just wonder, you know, you, you've been working with, with police departments. What do you think is the, the root cause of what we're seeing? And then how do we go about changing it? Is it a defunding kind of situation where you're redispersing funds into different, you know, areas of expertise or what? Yeah, well, it's a combination of things. Uh, the police are what we've created. They're exactly what we've created. Uh, mm -hmm. When we needed slave patrols, the police became slave patrols. When we needed to enforce Jim Crow laws, we asked the police to do that. When we asked the police to enforce drug laws and mass incarceration came about as a result of the police have done exactly what we've asked them to do. And I think in this culture, we have to reimagine policing and to think completely different about the kind of policing we want and what kind of police officers we want. We've had this kind of paramilitary approach to policing versus a service oriented approach to policing. And uh, there've been programs where they've hired ex-teachers, social workers, uh, nurses to go into policing. And, um, and there's been this kind of false tension between warrior police or guardian police. And uh, when you need a warrior, you want a warrior. I mean, when there's trouble and people are shooting people, you want a warrior to show up. And, uh, but for the most part, policing is about guardians. And every day in this country, there are a million contacts between police and community. 800,000 law enforcement officers, 18,000 police agencies. And every year, there are about 1,000 shootings of people of color. And, uh, but out of a million contacts every day, 365 million contacts, a million shootings, a lot of police are doing right mm -hmm. things and believe in the sanctity of life, and that everybody should go home at night. But that aside, we have a lot of work to do to reform police, to get them to think about sanctity of life and to retrain and refocus our energies on getting the right people to respond to problems. That's why co-responder models or transferring when it comes to defunding police, police should not be forced to do mental health work. Uh, I often use this metaphor that a police union official told me once, he said, the police have become the goalie in our communities. Mm. And you no know hockey or soccer, that if you have 45 shots on goal, then the rest of the team's not doing their job. Right. And uh, if you have 10 or 15 shots on goal in a match, then the rest of the team's doing their job. And what's happened is that most of the societal and community problems that we have have become the failure of the broader system to do their jobs, whether it's social, mm -hmm. mental health, education, uh, any, anything to deal with issues of poverty, et cetera. And mm -hmm. we call the police to solve those problems. 
And so we need to move resources to build the capacity of our mental health professionals, our substance abuse professionals, people working in those spaces, often issues that contribute to violence or crime. And if we can get the professionals doing that job 24-7, uh, and just like police are expected to do their jobs 24-7, then we'll probably have less uh, negative encounters between police and the community. And so it's, there are a lot of things that need to happen. We need to be able to terminate police, the bad ones. And so qualified immunity needs to be repealed. Uh, we need to have a national decertification index where if a person gets fired from uh, Flint, they can't get a job in Ann Arbor. Right. Uh, we can have that record and uh, show their, their, their criminality or their past. But at the end of the day, communities need to sit down and talk about the policing they want and the policing they need. And then they need to work and fund that kind of policing. And they need to move resources to the other kinds of agencies or services that can keep people out of the criminal justice system. Uh, that's kind of a long answer to your question, but. It's a big problem, so there is no short answer. Yeah. 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 I just wanted to hear your thoughts on it. And that I think that that's really true that over time, a lot of the funding has been just shifted to policing, you yeah. know, taken away from mental health service, even from education. I know here right. in our city, in our city of Flint, I mean, it, it'll break your heart. You go into the schools and the buildings and it's just falling apart. No resources. I mean, it's just it's atrocious. Yeah. And so I think it's just like you said, really sitting down and looking at how we can shift money back into some of the places it was taken away from when we exactly. had this hyper focus on, you know, war on drugs. We got to fight crime and be tough. Right. Because it, it is it's not giving us the results that no. even with all the money being spent on policing and all, it's not giving us the result we want. On average in this country, cities spend 50 percent of their budget on policing. Right. And um, which is crazy. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, the kind of policing that we said we wanted, we've created this paramilitary organization that uh, is difficult, difficult to manage and control. And um, that's where I think the the unfortunate death or murder of George Floyd has created this conversation that I hope is different this time. I mean, I've been working at this for 10 years and when Ferguson happened six years ago, it uh, catapulted us into a different kind of conversation. But I have to say, since Ferguson, there have been 27 major task forces or commission working on policing. And the reality is, and I facilitated 12 of those. Mm -hmm. And the reality is those task forces and commissions have made changes at the margins. We're still killing black people. And we're still killing people of color and we still have bad police and it goes to the culture of policing. And that's what has to be addressed. It's going to be a steep climb and it's going to be difficult, but we've got to do it or this is going to continue. You know? yeah, because yeah. as you said in your comment or your statement, the racism, uh, yeah, it's interesting in this book uh, called uh, uh, Conversations by Robert Livingston, he quotes, um, uh, Kendi's book, or that racism is not a tattoo; it's a sticker, mm. and uh, that racism as as a as a is a behavior, 
and that manifests itself in a variety of ways in a variety of groups that you might not ever anticipate it. And those who say they are not racist do racist things, and those who are racist do things that are not racist. <laughs> and, uh, right. and getting that understanding, the complexity of race and racism, our history. Uh, I've said in the past, and others have said as well, but I'm sort of modifying my position in this. I don't think racism is in our DNA. I think it's mm -hmm. in our decisions, mm -hmm. in our choices. Mm -hmm. And um, you can have a, a different response. Uh, yeah, to, just this morning, I came back into Billings, Montana, and I saw an African-American walking down the sidewalk, and he was wearing a Boston Red Sox hat. Now, I'm a Boston Red Sox fan. And I rolled my window, and I was with a guy from Montana, and he's a, he's a Western guy. And I rolled down my window, and I yelled out at this African-American guy, I go, go Sox. And he looked at me and said, yes, go Sox. And he goes, <laughs> wow, you talked to him. And I said, well, of course I talked to him. He's a Red Sox fan. I didn't see a black guy. I saw a Red Sox fan. Oh, you know? my goodness. <laughs> and until we beyond those kinds of uh, – of uh, stereotypes and stigmas and uh you know uh, it's i mean it's just it, it's some of the simple things that we could do so right right yeah i was thinking about the um the kerner report you know that they did in the 60s looking right. at you know what was causing all these you know um people burning down cities and right. protesting and right so it's like we and we already have answers but we haven't even done those things that were recommended, you know, yeah. 50 years ago. Well, the McKerner Report, the McCone Commission, yeah. all of those had profound recommendations mm -hmm. that have gone unimplemented, or there has been what Lloyd Johnson at the University of Michigan calls for generational forgetting, mm -hmm. is, is that every generation has to be reminded. Mm -hmm. And um, that's a, yeah, you know, and so when the Texas school system wants to outlaw, you know, the extreme uh, slavery narrative and history uh, because it's, mm. that's not who we are. Or, you know, President, Bomb, uh, President Biden and Senator um, Scott from South Carolina have both said in the last two weeks that we're not a racist country. And which, you know, completely <laughs> glosses over. Right. Uh, that sticker that continues to abide on our, our, on our historical body, you know, mm -hmm. and it may not be a tattoo. It doesn't have to be permanent, but the fact is when you look at our decisions, I was revisiting recently the events that took place almost a hundred years ago in Tulsa, mm. you know, where all yes. the 800 people were hospitalized, 10,000 mm. people left homeless, you know, and, you know, the behavior and conduct of white supremacy in those environments, you know, are something we have to acknowledge mm -hmm. and constantly need to be in a spirit of repentance um, in terms of what goes on or what happens. I mean, Rashonda, when I was growing up, I grew up in Missouri and my father and mother by contemporary definitions would be considered racist. Mm -hmm. uh, they were biased, they weren't overt, but I can remember my father. I was a second team high school all state football player. And I remember my father realizing that I was going to play opposite an offense. I was a defensive end and I was playing opposite an offensive end who happened to be black. Mm 
And my father said to me, uh, son, you know how to take care of that, don't you? And I said, what do you mean? He goes, just hit him at the knee. Take him out the first play of the game. Knock him, eliminate mm -hmm. him. You'll get a 15-yard penalty, but you don't have to face that black guy. You know, wow. and uh, I grew up in that kind of environment. And then when I was in college, I was rooming in California. I was doing work with Campus Crusade for Christ. And my roommate was an African-American. That was the first time I was in close, regular contact for two months mm -hmm. with an African-American and realized, oh, my gosh. You know, I love that guy like a brother. We're still in close contact. Mm -hmm. And it, my, I had to be, you know, as, as Brian Stevenson says, proximity is everything. That's you know, right. bringing in proximity yes. and being mm -hmm. in relationship completely alters and changes mm -hmm. that behavior. You know, I, I was what I was because I grew up in the environment that I grew up in. But I unlearned things, still unlearn things. Mm -hmm. And about all kinds of people, all kinds of cultures. Right, you know, right. I'm having to work through my own bias right now against evangelicals. <laughs> you know, mm. I mean, uh, what they say, what they do, uh, you know, how do I find grace in some of those mm -hmm. comments? It's, it's, a constant, uh, it's a constant journey, but I think that's a journey God calls us to be in. Yeah, keep me in prayer on that one. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's rough. That's a really rough one. Oh my yeah. goodness. It is. Yes. Oh. Mm -mm -mm. All so. right, friend. Okay. Thank you so much for this thank opportunity. You. Thank you, Rashana, for being a part of the Legacy Project. Man, thank you so much. To find out more information about this conversation and other Legacy Podcast episodes, go to ServantForge.org. Please subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app and consider leaving us a review. We want to hear from you. We want to get your ideas and your opinions. I have a new book that corresponds with a legacy project titled The Seeker, Bring Me the Horizon. You can find a copy of it on Amazon or your preferred book distributor. The book corresponds closely with these podcasts. The podcast episode was produced by Matt Erickson and edited by Carissa Erickson. The music is by David Hyde. Please look for a new episode of our podcast coming out soon. Remember, you have inherited a great legacy. You have an opportunity to create a great legacy. Engage your past to build a future. <laughs>